Welcome aboard! From UW Tacoma, this is Pod Defiance. Welcome to Pod Defiance, where we don't lecture, but we do educate. I'm Eric Wilson Edge. Today on the pod, we climb aboard the 133-foot schooner, The Adventurous, with UW Tacoma Associate Teaching Professor Julie Mazura. Fieldwork is an important part of science education, but the pandemic has made it difficult for students to get this experience, which is why Mazura and Associate Vice Chancellor for Research, Cheryl Greengrove, teamed with the crew of The Adventurous. The duo invited groups of current students, as well as recent grads, to spend the day on Commencement Bay aboard the boat. Participants got a chance to work with equipment, take samples, and learn about marine life, including a beluga whale, which made a surprise appearance during one of the trips. So good morning. Welcome to the Schooner Adventurous. This ship was built in 1913. So 108 years ago, she's been sailing um, with a variety of missions. The first one was to collect a specimen of a bowhead whale from the Arctic. Uh, and she's a very beautiful ship and was not very good at going into the Arctic. So that didn't last. She was later a pilot vessel for the San Francisco. Um, what that means is they bring the pilot with the local knowledge out to the large ship to guide the ship in. That's still done today. It's required by all large vessels. So everything um, bigger than us, really, that you see anchored and working in this port. They have a pilot brought to them now by a small red motorboat. Uh, not nearly as beautiful as we are <laughs> to guide the ships in. Uh, she's been a floating classroom now for years, and that's what we're doing today. So I'm going to split you guys up into four groups, so, and you guys are going to do the work. Like, I'm not here to demonstrate and go, oh, look, this is how you do it. I want you guys to grab some line and get your hands dirty so that you guys can put on your resume that you have experience doing oceanographic research, right? And this is going to go on your resume. Um, you might, might not be very proficient, you know, but you have the experience and you've done this. I wanted to kind of make up for the time that you guys didn't get an opportunity to be in the lab. You guys got to feel it. You got to get dirty. I am so sore. My hands are wrecked from yesterday and I love it. So awesome. My back is killing me. So you guys are going to have to do the work. My name is Ellen and my status is I'm a student. I'm currently an undergraduate student and I'm doing um, a major of environmental sustainability with a focus on policy and law. I hope to either go on to get an environmental law degree or a sustainability master's maybe at Columbia University. Like eventually I'd like to do work that connects communities with policymakers and scientists to make more informed um, and conscientious policy in, in the ways that we as humans you know, relate to environmental elements. I actually moved to Tacoma from Seattle so that I could get the sustainability degree. It was a really tough choice to either be an environmental scientist or an environmental sustainability major. But because of the type of work and after doing informational interviewing with people in different various fields, I decided that this was probably the best route to lead me in the direction um, that I was trying to go. But I have such a deep like respect for scientists that I'm trying to incorporate as much of that as possible without the time um, 
demands of an environmental science double major. I worked before I came back to be a student. This is my first bachelor's. And so um, both my like professional work and volunteer efforts related to um, food security, environmental impacts to humans, um, and larger things like that. I've already done like an AmeriCorps um, with the city of Seattle and United Way of King County. Um, and so a lot of my efforts are kind of like coming together and a piece of that puzzle was to get an academic um, experience and degree. It's interesting coming from Seattle and then now living in Tacoma, there's like, you know, discussion about, you know, how they're different. But honestly, I really love Tacoma because uh, personally, I can get closer to natural elements like the water. I can just come down here and enjoy it and be right next to it. Whereas Seattle, like you can see it, but it's not like you're right next to it unless you trek out of the city. And so I really love Tacoma for that. And then also I found that the people are just, um, I would say welcoming here in a different kind of way, which is really nice and encouraging. Um, so I really like it. And as well as the, there's a lots of parks around here um, and there's actually research now that I'm becoming more familiar with it that's happening down here, which is really just exciting and interesting. You guys ready to do some hand hauling and really get a good workout? We're going to work our abs and our lats and we're just going to really um, have a really great time with this station. This is my favorite type of oceanography, real physical, awesome type of oceanography. So, this instrument is about, oh, about $30,000. So let's not drop it, right? We want to make sure that it does its job. We actually got a new one recently, which is super fun and cool. So this is a Seabird 19. Um, this instrument is called a CTD. Can you guys guess what CTD stands for? See, the T might be easy. What's that? Oh, turbidity is a good, and that's a good one, but it, no, even more basic. It's cold out now. It's the temperature. Okay, the D stands for depth, right? And the C might be a little tricky, but I'll tell you guys, it's called, it's conductivity. So we know out in the ocean, we have salt and salt, it's not necessarily NaCl. There's many different ionic compounds that disassociate in the water. We taste it, it tastes salty. So there's a resistor in here that says, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna um, put an electrical charge in the water. I wanna see how much actually gets transferred. So we can measure how much salt's in the water. The temperature on the bottom of this white instrument is something called a thermistor. It's an electronic thermometer. It's doing the temperature. And the depth, what happens when you go down in the water? What's that? Pressure, yeah. Pressure starts to increase. So we use pressure and the salt because there's density differences there too. And we can figure out what the depth is. So this instrument right here, this is a pump and this is um, a fluorometer. It, measures the amount of chlorophyll in the water. Okay, so it's looking for chlorophyll A. We're correlating that with plankton, because plankton, especially phytoplankton, okay, has chlorophyll in it. But there could be other sources of chlorophyll, like leaves in the water, you know, little bits of other kind of um, plant material that might not necessarily be plankton per se. But pretty much this will correlate to how much plankton's in the water. And then where is, oh, there it is, down here. This instrument right here is an extra instrument. It's measuring the amount of dissolved oxygen in the water. So it has this membrane that sucks water through and it's able to tell 
what, how much dissolved oxygen is in the water. The last thing, which I think is a cool little instrument, it's pretty easy, right? But it will actually, it transmits light from one side to another, and it tells you how much light makes it over here. And that's your turbidity! <laughs> it's actually looking at how much solid material is in the water. So if it, if it takes a long time or less light gets detected on the other side, then we know that there's stuff in the water. So. That's what this instrument does. And then when we, we actually deploy it vertically through the water column, okay, and it traces out, if we graphed it, how temperature changes, really warm at the top, and it gets colder and colder as we get down to the bottom, okay? At the top, there might be, it might be like a little bit of oxygen in the water, and then it really spikes because there's a bunch of plankton in the water, photosynthesizing, and then it will tank and it will go down again. So it traces these kind of two-dimensional profiles of the depth. And if we do a bunch, we can actually gather all that information together and create these cool contour plots that will show you how water is kind of exists in the Puget Sound. This is like a black box, so if you you can send an instrument down, you can measure something, and you will trust it, right? Because it's thirty thousand dollars. But a good scientist will say, no, let's make sure it's right. So I've attached, attached this water bottle that's gonna go down with it. And we're gonna go take some water at the bottom. Now what we would normally do is we take the water back to the lab and I would measure it for dissolved oxygen using some chemical analysis in, the, in our lab. And then I would also uh, try to test to see how much chlorophyll's in it in the lab. And then I compare it to what the instrument says. And if they're reading correctly, you're like, okay, cool, this is great. So that's why we're gonna actually capture some water. I'm gonna demonstrate this in just a little bit. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna get some water that's about 150 meters deep and bring it back to the surface and then we're gonna to touch it. It's gonna to be freaking cold. This has a nozzle. So this is actually closed and this is actually open so make sure it's closed before you deploy it because I've done that before. Or it's just pouring out the sample. So this is basically, when you deploy it, it's going to be open and then once you get it to the depth that you want, you give it a tug and then it'll close. Did an arm workout with this yeah, one, right? right. A lot more going on here than just the simple secchi disc. What do you think the point of this is? Like, why use the Niskin bottle? What, what advantage does this have over the, plank, the simple plankton tow that we did earlier with the net? Very inefficient. Very inefficient. Like she said, you can get different depths from the samples. Yeah, yeah, you can target a precise depth. Um, and then, will this sample will it be as concentrated, less concentrated, more concentrated than what we got with that net, with our net tow? I'd like to think more because you don't have some of the water is able to go through that net even though it's a really fine mesh so maybe mm -hmm. this is just like collecting all of the water and nothing's getting okay. um yeah but then do you think the plankton, well, actually, the plankton concentration yeah so would, would the plankton concentration be greater or would maybe be less or maybe less than in this yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Less, I, I thought yeah, about it I was no you're like, yeah you're exactly right the way you thought through yeah. that exactly right yeah so the um because the water is moving so the mesh allows the water to move through it but right. captures the plankton so it concentrates right the net concentrates the plankton sample this will be a more diffuse sample it won't okay be as concentrated um, and one thing uh, scientists use this, they look at the, they'll count the number of different, uh, identify the different species in here and look at the relative abundance. Um, 
ingredient. In this sample that isn't as concentrated, okay. it gives them a sense of which, uh, exactly which plankton organisms are most abundant at a particular depth. So I've actually helped um, make what are called, uh, let me see if I can remember how to pronounce it. Chor uh, choroplex maps. Okay. Mm. Um, where you, so you, you, I actually went and took the data. You, you send this out at multiple depths. You collect the, um, the sample and um, figure out, you know, how much nitrogen, um, oxygen, um, all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, phytoplankton, whatever it is um, that we can find. And then you make maps um, um, that shows at different depths, like how much the concentration of each of those measurements so you can like literally see visually as you're going deeper and deeper the concentration of each of those nutrients. Okay. So that's kind of like a cool thing you can do with that data. My name is Maggie Jo. Um, I graduated from UWT in December. Um, I was an environmental science major with the emphasis on conservation biology and ecology. And so I'm here, I worked with, I've worked with Julie basically since I was at UWT um, doing research in her oceanography uh, lab there at the university. So she basically just asked me if I wanna come back and do some volunteering. I've always kind of been like a, like a little bit of an environmentalist and um, I guess since probably like high school, beginning of high school, I was just always really cared about the planet and wanted to do something in, in that realm. I've actually gotten to, you know, find that not only is it hard to be, um, you know, a female in, in science, but also a, um, a person of color and a female in science. So those two things I've kind of really owned about myself in, in this field because we're just really underrepresented and sometimes um, not taken as seriously or, um, you know, it's stuff like that. So, I mean, I've learned a lot through doing stuff like this. My first trip on on uh, this boat was actually for Girls at the Helm. And um, so it was an all-girl, um, uh, students, all-girl crew, and then all-girl all volunteers. So it was really kind of an empowering trip for me too, um, to see all that. And then just being able to share science with younger girls and, you know, see, you know, showing them that, they can be in a, you know a science discipline i really do have a passion for working in the lab i'm a bit of a lab rat i really enjoy that setting um, but i do enjoy field work too so um i mean i definitely would like to have a you know find a job where i can be outside when i want to be and do get my hands dirty when i when i want to but then also be able to be in the lab and you know with my lab coat and goggles and do some fun stuff in there too I was just reading about it, it on the news. I was joking with my friend that I was going to see it today. Oh <laughs> that is Quartzite Potential Beluga! So this guy is thousands and thousands of miles from home. It should be up in the Arctic, and why is it white? It's white like that because it blends with snow. With the ice, right? It's supposed to be camouflaged against snow to hide from its two main predators, orcas and polar bears. So it's way out of its element here, and its camouflage is working against it here. Unclear why it's thousands of miles from home. Their other Arctic adaptation is their scientific name. Part of it's Lucas, which means white. But their genus name is uh, Delphinapterus, which means the dolphin without a dorsal fin. So they have no dorsal fin on their back, which is distinct from other uh, 
And don't they have they flexible spines so that they're it's not exactly, fused yeah. so they can turn and look at you and things? Adaptation. Yeah, they can turn their heads. They don't have Sorry. fused spines, which is really unusual in the whale world. Um, so yeah, it's adapted to life in the Arctic under the ice for searching for like breathing uh, holes in the ice and hiding in a white environment. It really has no business here thousands and thousands of miles from home. This is called a mantinet. It's like a manta ray hangs out on the surface of the water. I didn't invent, I didn't create this, but this net was made by my little brother. So um, mantinets typically are, have a 10 foot wingspan. They're very heavy. You take cranes on and off, right? This is made of 100% aluminum um, and it's a little bit smaller, okay? So my dad and I, we redesigned a NOAA um, a net to be able to be used on a boat like this or a small little uh, kayak or even off of the Tommy Thompson, which is this huge research vessel up at UW Seattle. So that's what this is. And then, um, so the way that it works is that it floats on the surface like this. It forces water down through this area back here. And then here, I have something called a flow meter. It looks like a little bullet, okay? And it basically, when it goes through the water, we're, like we're almost there, sorry. Nope, it goes fine. through the water, okay? And it turns. It's a little analog, numbers go by, okay? So if I have the length times the width times the distance, length times width times height, what can I calculate? Volume, right? So now we know how much water is going through the net, okay? So the net actually is gonna collect whatever is floating on the top two and a half centimeters of water, okay? That's cool. And then what we'll do, we'll do a 15 minute tow and then we'll bring it back on board and we'll rinse off the net with a fresh water hose and then we'll bring it back to the lab. So the purpose here is to look for microplastics and we've been doing this research at the University of Washington Tacoma since 2008. Okay, We helped develop through the, through the help of undergraduate researchers just like you helped to develop internationally used protocols for detecting plastic pollution in the ocean. That's us, UW Tacoma. <laughs> Another information that we're gonna collect is the latitude and longitude when the net goes in. So if somebody could just be at the con end of the ready, we're, it's gonna take a while to get in there. Um, but also what we need to write down is what the flow meter numbers are. Okay, I got so I'm gonna go ahead and read them off just for a sake of time. For the start flow meter? Start flow meter, are you ready? Yes. I'm gonna read it off and then when I'm done, then you're gonna read it back. Nine, four, five. Nine four five eight five two eight five two. Okay, perfect. All right. Great. Now we're gonna go ahead and um, you'll need to record the time and the latitude and longitude when it goes in. Can I get some volunteers to help with the net so you guys can see what we have in here? And I don't see. Uh, I don't have my glasses. I'm like, why can't I see anything? Use my glasses. But this little blue thing—that's a little piece of microplastic, right? A lot of the white stuff in here is actually shell material, which is kind of interesting. There's a couple of uh, copepods in there, Ooh, or, nice. or definitely some some other yeah, organisms and stuff. Yeah, so there's some really cool stuff in here. So I'm gonna go ahead and sample this and we'll bring it back to the lab and see what we can find. Tim Wallstrom, I'm a senior here at UW Tacoma, environmental science. The environmental science program has a great email hookup situation where uh, they send out opportunities like this through email, um, and uh, it just gets everyone out and, and doing stuff like this. Uh, I did a capstone, um, so I did some um, 
uh, I did a capstone on soil uh, magnetism. Uh, so that was pretty fun. Uh, but it got me out in the field um, and uh, got me out collecting samples and things like that. So um, learning how to how to take data and and and, um, and work with it and, and and write a paper. So uh, so this will be a good good valuable experience too in, in, in collecting data and, and kind of going through the process. Yeah, and then you just turn on lefty loosey. I just want to carefully so make sure we don't spill the sample there. And you want to, yeah, take that off. Cool. And then we'll pour that in the jar. And then with our naked eyes, we should be able to see the plankton and the sample here. And they'll just appear as specks. You can see the green specks, the little photosynthesizing phytoplankton. And then if someone wants to put their uh, lights on this, if you want to turn the light on on your phone. You might see some zooplankton, those little miniature animals will tend to gravitate toward the lights. So you see some things moving around in there? Yeah. Cool. So those moving bits are the zooplankton, the miniature animals. And we'll get this sample under the microscope and see what's actually in there. But in your hands, you want to hold that in your hand, you're right now holding an entire ecosystem, right? A teeming universe of life, a whole world right there in miniature. So what do you think those are? Phytoplankton. Exactly right, phytoplankton. So you can see the green color, the chlorophyll, and these ones, uh, the species specifically, are called diatoms. And what's cool here is each of these different shapes is a different species of diatom. And to us, they all look kind of similar. Our minds just want to say, oh, those are all diatoms. But when scientists run the genetics, when they look at the genetic difference between these organisms, they find they're so far removed on the tree of life, like this diatom relative to another diatom shape here. These two different species might be as far apart in the tree of life as a banana is from an elephant. Um, incredible genetic diversity here. Um, and so that's our phytoplankton, right? We talked about being the base of the food chain, producing oxygen, sequestering carbon. So the phytoplankton aren't mobile. They're more like plant-like organisms. This is a zooplankton, a kind of animal. And those copepods, so they're moving so fast, 500 body lengths per second. What does that mean? That's just kind of an abstract number. Uh, consider this, so if a cheetah was running 500 body lengths per second, it'd be running 2,000 miles an hour. So this is extraordinary speed. A copepod's movement is 10 times faster than the fastest fighter jet. Look at it another way, if you had the copepod's leaping ability, the copepod's using these two little paddles to push its way through the water to leap. Um, if you had that ability, the copepod's speed and leaping ability, you'd be able to stand in the end zone of a standard football field and leap, easily leap through the goalpost on the opposite side. So this is like superhero power, right? I mean, this is incredible speed this organism has evolved, unprecedented on Earth. Did you see those two oh. up there? Okay, did you see how oh, fast yeah, that moved? They are, Isn't that crazy? It's almost like Ooh. science fiction. It's like it's teleporting. It's like you see it, it's gone. It's moving so fast. Mm -hmm. So that's our copepod that has to move fast because a lot of things want to eat it. There are things like larvations, sea butterflies, um, all these creatures that want to eat it. My favorite is this horrifying creature, terrifying creature called Franima. Have you ever seen the movie Aliens? You know, the Ridley Scott Aliens movies? <laughs> so that creature in Aliens that looks hideous, horrific, terrifying, is actually an anatomically correct zooplankton called Franima. Somebody saw that under a microscope, they thought this thing is horrifying, they scaled it up, and that's your Aliens monster. So if you're a copepod, that's your worst nightmare. That thing wants to chase you down and eat you. The only way to get away to escape the horrible Franima is to move fast. You don't move fast enough, you get eaten, your genes disappear from the gene pool, if you move fast, you survive, your genes get passed on. Over millions of years of evolutionary time, this animal has evolved to be the fastest animal on Earth.
Thank you to our guests and thank you for listening. Be sure to like and subscribe. You can find us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Pocket Cast, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts. Thank you.